Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Lydia Zuin. Lydia Zuin is a Brazilian journalist, researcher in futurology, professor and speaker. She holds an MA in semiotics and a PhD in arts. She publishes a quarterly column at UOL about culture, technology and science fiction. Besides being a science fiction writer, Lydia also teaches at the Institutio Europo de Design. She is a freelance researcher at Envisioning and Senior Foresight Researcher and Chair of the Centre for Science Fiction at the Disruptive Futures Institute. Welcome to FuturePod, Lydia. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. So Lydia, question one, the, the guests tell their story. So how did Lydia Zuin become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Okay, that's kind of crazy, I guess, because I never thought I would be working with future studies or anything like that. But it all started when I started my bachelor's degree in, in journalism. And I had a professor, a, a professor who teached me about theory of, of communication. And when he, he was talking about cyber culture, he mentioned a science fiction book called Neuromancer by William Gibson. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, thought it, I thought that might have been the one that was coming. I didn't read much before going to the university, but then I listened to this professor talking about this book and I was very interested. So I read it, I, I discovered about cyberpunk, and he also was like a, a leader of a research center, an undergraduate research center at my college, and he really told people to try how to start a researching career. And since we would have a discount in our payment for the college, I thought I could give it a try. So yeah. the next year, I started an undergraduate research about Japanese animation called Serial Experiments Lane, which is an animation released in 19, 1998. Mm -hmm. And it was about a future where the internet, they're called wired, is not separated from the physical world. So I tried to understand how that happened because people were able to connect to the internet without devices. Basically what Elon Musk wants to do with Neuralink, but it was like 98, nobody talked about that. We didn't even have wireless internet back then. Yeah. So I tried to understand the references because the animation uh, brings so many references to actual events, but also it's mi mixed up with conspiracy and a lot of concepts that are more speculative. So I tried to kind of translate what were the subjects being addressed there. And by the end of the research, I had a thesis or a monograph that tried to make this comparison between science fiction and science fact. Oh. But back in 2009, when I did this research, nobody talked about futurology or future studies here in Brazil. Some people knew authors like Ray Kurzweil, but nobody talked really about singularity or anything like that. But my supervisor suggested that I organized an event at my college, inviting engineers, but also mathematicians, physicists, and science fiction writers 
researchers, and even fans to contribute and talk about this relationship between science fiction and science fact. So how some science fiction writers used to be scientists too, like Arthur Clarke and mm. Isaac Asimov, for instance. Again, it was 2010. Nobody talked about that here in Brazil. It was kind of crazy. I, I was known as the girl who would talk about aliens and dolphins and the internet. So nobody really paid attention. So I decided to study something that is more popular, which is art. So people would understand me better. I did a final work about industrial music, which is a kind of electronic music. I tried to understand why so many bands adopted these militaristic, fascistic aesthetics. Mm especially dedicating to a band called Nachma from Austria. And I had a chance to go to a summer school at the University of Vienna, and I had a chance to interview the DJ, the artist behind Nachma. So I finished my thesis about this, and I kept studying about culture and imagery, and that's why I entered on my master's degree on semiotics. And I studied another Austrian artist called Gottfried Helwein, who paints hyper-realistic paintings of children holding guns with Nazi uniforms and, and also some toys like Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, beside the children holding guns. Wow. It was kind of crazy. So it was the same thing from my undergraduate research. I tried to understand what he was talking about. And I also had the opportunity to interview him. I went back to Vienna. I joined his exhibition and I, I talked to him. So... I kind of made an analysis of his work using Jungian archetypes of the shadow and the child. And then I finished this. But I always had this academic profile. So it was very hard for me to find a job here in Brazil. No newspaper or magazine. And nobody was really interested in my profile. And I also had already a, a master's degree, which made it more difficult yet. So... <laughs> yeah. You're overqualified for the work you were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I didn't have too much experience as a journalist. I only had some internships inside my college and in a public institution. So I, I wasn't really experienced in journalism. But a friend sent me a job offer from Rockstar Games, which is a video game developer from England. And it was basically a, a job for localization and QA testing, translation, and so on. So I tried. I sent my CV and uh, a letter, and I, I never thought it would work or anything like that. But in the end, I was invited to join them. And I moved to England in 2015. Stayed there for 10 months, I guess, because in the end, the, the work was kind of repetitive. And I always was this kind of nerdy girl who likes to <laughs> study all the time and learn things all the time. So it wasn't really my style. I decided to come back to Brazil to start my PhD. And I just def defended my thesis past uh, Tuesday. And the thesis was basically a combination of these ideas that I was studying when I was 19 and everything that I learned throughout these this past years about art, technology, and futurology. So my thesis is called Homo Imago, mm -hmm. Images as a Means of Survival and a Second Body. It's basically concentrated on the works of authors like Ivan Bistrina, Hans Belting, but also 
Ernst Becker, who wrote, wrote that book about the denial of death, and Philippe Arrier, which is a, a French historian. And basically, I tried to understand how throughout the history of humanity, we used images as a means to extend our lives through memory. I studied how like portraits in the Renaissance were used in this sense, so death masks and death rituals, funeral rituals or even funeral art, and then to the photographs and then virtual reality, but mostly uh, concentrated in transhumanistic storytelling or narratives. And I picked some artists and some works to analyze. I analyzed Andy Warhol's uh, series about death in America. And I realized he works like with this idea of celebrity as a means to find immortality. You kind of reduce yourself as a stereotype and as a something to be reproduced. And then you're no longer a person, but just a stereotype, like an archetype. Marilyn Monroe, for instance, was not a person anymore. She was just a sexy blonde woman and it's replicated even after her death. Yep. And I also studied Gottfried Helwey again. He has a painting called American Prayer, which is basically a boy praying to a Donald Duck figure. I also studied uh, Damien Hirst because he has some series of uh, installations using corpses of animals conservated and yep. It's kind of controversial, but it's this <laughs> it's yeah. this combination between high art and mass culture, pop culture, which ends up in Michael Jackson's funeral, which is another event I studied. And finally, arriving to more contemporary artists like Bjork and Grimes. So I made this comparison between the two artists in a sense that Bjork is more oriented to a post-humanistic narrative and Grimes is more oriented to a Californian ideology of transhumanism. So this is basically what I've been doing and I write about this stuff also in my column and mm. some more essays I publish online. I'm, I'm trying to translate all my stuff that I, I usually write in Portuguese, but I'm trying to translate all this, this stuff. And with time, I, I started to read more about politics and gender studies as well, because that's that was something that I missed for a long time. I've been reading a lot of this kind of stuff and also some classic science fiction so I can help organizations in this sense, organizations or institutions in general. And when I work with uh, companies like Envisioning, for instance, we had made some projects alongside the Swiss Army. And there was one that we analyzed four science fiction titles uh, Blade Runner 2049, Neuromancer, uh, Detroit Become Human, which is a video game, and 2001 Space Odyssey. And we made this comparison between uh, fictional te technologies uh, addressed in these narratives and real technology. And we used methodology like NASA's TRL, Technology Readiness Level. Everyone can check it. You, you can go to the website. It's envisioning.io. And two years ago, I wrote an interactive narrative for them, for Swiss Army, and I addressed the subject about mind uploading, transhumanism, and radical life extension, which is basically what I'm most interested when it, it comes to science fiction and transhumanism. So, mm. yeah. And then with that intellectual frame, you then landed in COVID in Brazil. <laughs> yes. I know. I'm, I'm here like living this or trying to survive this. 
And I tried to make sense of what is happening. I mean, I was studying death in the end during my PhD. And all of a sudden, we had over 3,000 deaths here in Brazil and counting. Mm. People were still dying in thousands uh, just here in my state, Sao Paulo. So it's it's crazy. So I learned a lot. I also lost some people during the past year. So it's been it's been a journey, I guess. <laughs> in terms of what you were thinking theoretically doing your PhD and then living in a reality of death, have your ideas changed? Um, when I started my PhD thesis, I I wanted to find a means to believe that it's possible to trick death or like trying to really reaching immortality as some transhumanist uh, wish. But in the end, I just realized, no, this is, this is not possible, at least not for now. We see people like authors like Yuval Noah Harari saying that today we have technology and scientific knowledge to make some things that were just regarded to faith before to become reality. But death is just an, an ultimate challenge for us. And I believe that death in the end is the basic, well, this is my thesis in the end, my hypothesis in my thesis. It's what generates our culture. It's what makes us create art, culture, religions, morality, and even technology and science as a means to extend our lives and live better lives. But it's crazy because I finished my PhD, my thesis, asking the following question, which was a question I, I made to Natasha Vitamore, one of the founders of the transhumanist movement, uh, which is, if we knew how to deal with death better and grief, would we be trying to find a means to survive, like to, to live forever or to live radically longer than we are able now? So in the end, I finished my thesis thinking that the problem is not death itself, but our lack of ability to deal with loss and grief. So mm, True. It's the human condition. Exactly. Thanks, Lydia. Second question, the one I encourage the guests to talk about a concept or framework or you know, philosophy that is central to how they do what they do. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? I try to combine my practice with my own personal perspectives and also my experience. So I found in design fiction a methodology that combines my experience with science fiction, but also sem semiotics, communication, and so on. So mm -hmm. it was very interesting to know that Bruce Sterling created this methodology because he's an author that I really appreciate. Yeah. And I met him here in Brazil in 2011, I guess. And it was great to meet him. We, we actually, I had the, the opportunity to go out for a dinner with him and we had pizza and we talked a lot. I, I rambled a lot because I was so young and so, <laughs> so revengeful, I, I guess. And in the end, I was kind of bad with the, the literary market here in Brazil. It's, it's not a good thing. And then I just rented a lot with him and he just gave me, he signed a book that really, he released with another Brazilian author back then. And he gave me a Swiss army, how, how do you say it? The Swiss army knife. 
yes, the Swiss Army knife. And he said, this is the basic tool that every hacker needs to have. Yeah. So he gave it to me as a gift. And I was like, wow, I need to make it for it. I need, I need to grow as a great writer and researcher to make it for the, the gift that he, he gave to me. And then I realized he was the creator of science fiction. So I've been using this as a reference for my professional work mm -hmm. uh, in the market. But in my heart, like I'm more like an academic researcher. So I usually end up reading all the traditional stuff. So papers, journals, and mm. or even trying to find out new patents. I always try to bring philosophical, sociological, critical references to research because in the field of futurology, many times we are tempted to be utopian or pro mm. propagandistic about uh, technology. But there's so much to be thought in terms of inequalities and prejudice and bias. So I'm trying to work more with these kind of topics, but bringing science fiction as a means to translate these ideas for people who are not too tech savvy. I usually say that sometimes you don't need to, to read a paper about artificial intelligence, but maybe you can watch a Black Mirror episode and you will be all right to understand what the technology is. So that's what I try to do. Can you talk about how you might introduce the use of design fiction with a client as to how you would set it up? How would you introduce the idea? How would you make them comfortable with using something like this? Yeah, I usually bring some quotes uh, from Bruce Sterling who described design fiction as a methodology that creates diegetic prototypes. So diegetic means that dialogue, so prototypes that dialogue with people and make them believe and immerse in the, the narrative. So it's better for people to understand and live throughout the narrative more than just presenting a framework or anything like that. We are narrative species we we mm -hmm. like joseph campbell always said that so it's better to tell stories than to just present frameworks and in the same sense i bring also another quote by arthur c clark that he says fiction is sometimes better than non-fiction because you can you make bigger you you make it bigger like the, the mind of people minds of people and they can imagine more more possibilities for the future than if you bring a non-fictional example. Yeah. And it's if, it's more important even now that things are too quick, too fast. And, mm. well, Clark died in 2003, I guess. So if he said that in the 90s, for instance, now things are even faster. So in this sense, fiction is even more relevant. So I try to tell my clients how... Science fiction can, can be a, a means for us to think in a longer term future and how to bring some questions about politics or uh, inequalities and even new species, new relationships, maybe with robots, artificial intelligence or whatever, in a more safe or in a safer uh, environment because it's fiction. And then there's many ways we can do this. These diegetic prototypes can be just a narrative, a short story or a video, an installation, ex an experience. There are some companies that are uh, specializing this kind of approach. Like in United States, we have Sci Futures, 
and he they they have made an experience for Visa, which was about the future of payments, and they kind of created a smart house with people dressed as androids or anything like this. So we would imagine throughout living an experience of future payments. Mm-hmm. It depends on the client. It depends. I, I only, it's a very new methodology here in Brazil. I only have one example of a client here in Brazil, but with Envisioning, we have done this, this work with Swiss Army, I think, three times already. And I see the, the French army is also hiring science fiction writers to think about the future. So it's something that, that is growing, you know. People are, go, are getting more aware of the importance or the relevance of science fiction as a means to think about the future rather than just thinking in a more market perspective or just financial perspective. I wonder whether science fiction as a cultural container lets us talk about things in a fantastical concept when they're actually here now. And I think you're touching on this with issues of gender, racism, power. Mm-hmm. I just wonder whether science fiction offers a chance for people to have conversations about this when they can talk about it in an imagined future rather than talk about it happening right here, right now. Exactly. Margaret Atwood says that that she doesn't write about the future, but about the present. So if we take examples like The Handmaid's Tale, now available as a series as well, uh, she was talking about the present time when she wrote the book in the 70s, I guess. We actually use science fiction as a metaphor. And it's funny because here in Brazil, during the military dictatorship, uh, some writers that didn't used to to write science fiction adopted the style, the genre, to address some topics that were censored by the government. Mm. So it's interesting to see how we use alien creatures or robots or artificial intelligence rather as a metaphor to human problems and not really thinking about different uh, creatures or different lives it- Literally, I can give some examples of writers like Margaret Atwood, but also Ursula K. Le Guin and also Octavia Butler, who talk about gender issues, uh, racial issues. And it's great. It's like when you read stuff that they wrote, it's just so mind-blowing and so mind-opening because they bring these other perspectives that are not really easy to tackle in a non-fictional perspective and that's where Clark comes back it's sometimes easier to tell a story a fictional story but using actually the fictional parts as a metaphor for real stuff thanks Lydia that's great third question How does Lydia's win make sense of the emerging futures around her? What are the things that you are sensing that cause you to get excited? And possibly what are the things that you're sensing that cause you anxiety or concern? Yeah, well, I always like immersive technologies. I started researching a lot of virtual reality. So when commercial headsets were available for us, like, Oculus Rift or HTC Vive. I was super excited. I bought yep. one for me, but it's not. <laughs> that, it's not really that immersive for now. No. So it's something I 
I expect to be better in the near future. I thought the pandemic would like serve as a means to speed up the innovation in this sector, but it doesn't doesn't seem to have uh, helped it so much in this sense. But this is something that I really look look forward. And on the other hand, I tend to be more pessimistic uh, in a more philosophical, ontological perspective. My favorite authors are more pessimistic, like Wilhelm Flusser, who was a Czech Brazilian philosopher. He had a critique about technology, but at the same time, he had some very particular perspectives about reality. And like he, he never said that our reality was based on causality, but actually it's all chaos. So he brought a lot of references from Kafka as well. I try to be more pessimistic in a way, and I just realized that there was a writer who who promoted this idea in Futurology, and he actually called this idea as comparative Futurology. Hans Jonas was a German philosopher mm. who said that we, we should be imagining the worst case scenarios because then we would be prepared to avoid them or to live through throughout it. Some people don't like it. Some people prefer to be more optimistic. Just, you know, you have people like Peter Diamand is talking about abundance and how we, mean we should be more positive about the future and that correct mindset would take us to a better future. But I'm kind of agnostic about this. I prefer to, <laughs> I prefer to stick to Hans Jonas and, and think the worst case scenarios and try to avoid them. The Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius and Seneca is exactly what you talked about in terms of you know, imagining the worst and and then realizing it it actually isn't the worst, or to imagine a future that you think everything has gone wrong and to suddenly realize that you could still do things in it, which is the essence of Stoicism. Yeah. The interesting connection for me, Lydia, has been that a lot of Stoic ideas have been shown to be useful for mental health. Mm -hmm. It seems you know, anecdotally that actually adopting the worst case scenario as a way of thinking through decisions is actually got better mental health outcomes than hoping that things will work out well. Yeah, I don't know. My therapist would disagree, I guess, because she's <laughs> she says I'm like the, this expression, I'm eight or 80. I'm always in the extremes. When you are too pessimistic or too stoic, you kind of never have hope or you never get excited uh, when things go go right. It's more like, oh, okay, I, I waited for the, the worst and it's not that bad in the end but I shouldn't be so extreme. And that's why I've been reading more about Protopia. It's a concept proposed by Kevin Kelly, but there's other people working on that currently, like Monica Bielskite, and she's going to publish soon a collective manifesto about Protopian futures. And basically the idea is trying to imagine futures that are not uh, dystopian and not even utopian. It's a combination. It's like, uh, looking forward to a future that is better than nowadays, but it's not perfect. It's something that I'm trying to to believe more because I usually I usually stick to the worst case scenario. So yeah. <laughs> it's something that I'm I'm learning. 
that was the essence of cyberpunk. Yes. In the cyberpunk was in no way dystopian, nor was it utopian. It was kind of a mashup. Well, some people think it's more dystopian, but I don't know. I I think it depends on the author. Each author has a, a perspective for cyberpunk. I think the the subgenre was born with this pessimistic, like no future lemma, but. There are some other authors that are more positive, like Bruce Sterling himself. He published a very interesting book by the end of the 90s. It was a, a book about a post-pandemic society by the end of the 21st century. And there were some bad things, but there were also good things. And it's just about not being naive about technology in the end, because some cyberpunk narratives, mostly the mainstream ones, are going to be apologetic about technology. And that's not the case. But on the other hand, we will have other narratives that are completely the other way around. So they will say that we will have the Earth destroyed by uh, artificial intelligence. We will have Terminators and so on. It's not about extremes in the end. But cyberpunk has this perspective of, of using extremes because, wow, it, it's cool, you know, to imagine a destroyed <laughs> world and not a wonderful world. With And that's, that's something that some contemporary science fiction writers are working on, like solar punk is a response to cyberpunk as a more positive and a green perspective for technologies in the future. And it's a... It's still in the beginning, but there are people like uh, Sarina Olibari, who is an editor, and she works with many authors that are writing solar punk. Here in Brazil, we also have a recently translated to English collection of short stories called Solar Punk. I personally don't like positive <laughs> stories in fiction, but it's like we say, we appreciate cyberpunk in an aesthetic perspective, but we would like to live in a solar punk future. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Lydia. Fourth question is a communication question. I'm talking to someone who I think I'd say is a communication expert. The question is, how do you explain what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Okay. Well, I usually tend to say that I'm a journalist and a research in futurology. And then I just say that I study the future, but I don't, I can't like foresee the future. And if someone says that, just be cautious because nobody is capable of foreseeing the future. So what I do is mostly based on what Ospk Flechthein described as futurology. It's kind of sociology or philosophy of the future, but it's a means to understand the present and the past as a means to plan the future or to envision the, the desirable futures we would like to live in. And that's why I always say that we need diverse scenarios in this case. We need more diversity among futurologists because if we only have the same white male American guy talking about the future, we will only have the same idea. And that's why I organized a panel uh, by the beginning of March called Decolonizing Futures, especially to address this mm -hmm. and how we should be thinking about other futures rather than just the American perspective or European perspective. That's what I try to do. I try to use science fiction as a means to approach people who are not 
too tech savvy. Sometimes people don't like science fiction, but they end up liking when they meet me and they see my classes, they attend to my classes or my talks. They give a chance because some people are prejudiced about science fiction. They, they think it's all about Star Wars or Star Trek, aliens and space wars and so on. And I say, no, no, please do read other people like Octavia Butler, for instance, or like Wing and so on. And then they realize science fiction is much more than just the hired science fiction by Clark, Asimov, Heinlein, or the main, mainstream titles like Star Wars, Matrix, and so on. As a field, you know, there is a field that is taught, there is a professional association, there is a, there is a federation that, yeah. that's interested in future studies. What advice would you give to the field generally about becoming uh, more effective communicators in getting their information or their message or whatever it is out to, to a public that is bombarded with communication? Yes. Well, I'm not associated to any futurist associations. I I really don't believe in this kind of stuff, but maybe someday I will kind of be forced to do this because that's how the world works. I don't know. I, I think I, I usually say that people, anyone can think about the future. And I think this is something that UNESCO is working on, like with futures lit literacy. They are trying to spread the word about how people should be thinking about the future in a broader sense. There's also organizations like Teach the Future where you have people working on implementing futures thinking at schools. I think everyone has their contribution to thinking about the future, but it's really difficult to filter all the information we are being bombarded all the time. But my advice would be find what you love and concentrate on the subject you love. I think the best way to deal with this is kind of thinking like a researcher. So for instance, for the past four years, I've, I've dedicated myself to understand the re relationship between death, grief, imageries and transhumanism. So that's basically what I read for the past four years. So finding your passion or passions could help you filter reality and all the information we receive every day. Hmm. So you're really saying that in a field as broad as future studies is, is those things that attract you, interest you, you are passionate about to actually concentrate your communication in those areas rather than spread yourself. Yeah, I guess if you just be too generalistic, you you won't be helping anyone because then I would just go to Wikipedia. Maybe it's better to be specialist in some topics and give depth to the conversation rather than just explaining briefly what is that technology or that uh, innovation. I think there are some people working in a, in a more collective sense of presenting futurology and saying what is innovation and future studies and singularity and so on. But I think it's important to take a step forward and start the conversations that are more that are deeper and more specialized. I usually say that I don't have patience to just teach people the beginning. I, I like to, to talk about deeper stuff. I like to talk about uh, immortality or mind uploading or stuff like that. And some people are not prepared. Like they didn't, didn't read about this before. But if we just stick to the basics, we will never get to the depth, to the deeper side of the subject, you know. This is my perspective anyway. Thanks, Lydia. 
Well, we're at the last question, the open question. Is there something that's come up or, I mean, we've covered a lot in this conversation, but is there something that you'd like to unpack a bit more? I'm, I'm certainly interested in finding more about your last four years reading as to really what you think that means for yourself and us as a culture going forward. But the whole, the whole notion of culture, technology and death, I think are, are fascinating threesome to put together. Yeah, I mean, besides this idea of dealing with grief and death and loss, I really found interesting the interpretation that Harari brings to us in terms of how technology and science, scientific innovation are trying to make what was a belief before into reality. In Homo Deus, he really talks much about this subject. And it was interesting to see that we are the same humans that we, that our ancestors were. And this is something that Joseph Campbell says in his book. But basically, we have the same struggles, the same fears that a medieval person had, for instance. We still struggle with death and loss, or maybe even worse than medieval people because they lived among death all the time with the black death and so on. But our struggles and our desires are not so much different from our ancestors. I think we try to, it, it's again the same idea of taking death as an inspiration rather than a constant fear that paralyzes you. I think Nietzsche said something like that, that nihilism is not just saying that the, the world doesn't make sense and everything is bad, but actually realize that and do something about it. I understand death as a means of an inspiration to do stuff and to give meaning to life because we are the only living species that know we are going to die. No animals uh, know about that. They just realize they are going to die when they are going to die. And since we are capable of knowing this early on in our lives, uh, this is why we try to find these meanings and these artificial rituals or creations such as religion and morality as a means to organize and give sense to our life. And in the end, it's a beautiful thing if you consider that art is a means to forget or to address death. Damien Hirst says that all art is about death. Again, it's something dark, but I used to be a goth teenager and I can't just deny history. So. <laughs> something I say, Lydia, when I was teaching was the notion of through uncertainty and through really the whole chaos of and randomness of the world, we can still create something that we think is our purpose. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's precisely what, what I was trying to say. Like we need to find purpose. We need to find something that we love and we are passionate about because in the end, if we don't have pa passion about nothing, it, it's basically depression. And then, you can't live like this. It's just waiting for death, and uh, it's not a good thing to live like this. <laughs> the other thing about purpose, of course, is we don't always have purpose, but that's okay too because then what emerges is the search for purpose. Mm -hmm. Purpose isn't necessarily an end state, nor is it a constant. Purpose changes. Yes, totally, totally agree with that. I mean, so many ideas went through my head. I, I joke about this because whenever I had some new passion, I wanted to get a tattoo about that. <laughs> and if I had a tattoo for everything that I was passionate about, I would be covered with tattoos. But I only did my first tattoo last year 
when I after I completed 30 years <laughs> and then I, I finally understand well maybe I'm, I'm old enough to stick to a passion and then I got this tattoo which says death consciousness which kind of summarizes my thesis it's being conscious about death that makes us struggle or just carry on you know create all the stuff we we create, we we record podcasts, we write stuff, we read stuff, and we talk with people as a means to to forget we are going to die or just to give a meaning to our life. It's dark, I know, but it's me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't find it dark. I just find it realistic. For me, the other thing we do is we try to make a difference in people's lives. Yes. Because while we will die, and to some extent our memory dies with us to a point, but if you make a difference in someone's life, then that difference goes forward even if you don't. Mm -hmm. Mexican culture, they have this saying, like, we have three deaths. One, the first one is when we, re we realize we are going to die someday. The second one is when we literally die. And the third one is when nobody remembers about us anymore. So we're completely forgotten as a person, as individual. So uh, memory is a very important thing in our, our society, I guess. We, maybe we're not conscious about this. We don't think, oh, I, need, I need to keep the memory of someone I love. But this is something important. And since the ancient Romans, poets say, used to say that I'm going to outlive through my work, through my poetry. My body will be deceased, but my work will make me immortal. And it's kind of true if you consider authors like Shakespeare or even philosophers like Socrates. And anyways, these people who had big ideas. But on the other hand, we are seeing this moment in this pandemic, how people are just being discarded like in this necro necropolitics. And it's crazy to see, especially here in Brazil, like we are having collective spaces to discard bodies, you know? So it's tragic, I guess, because in the end, everybody is important to someone at least. And discarding people, bodies like that is just, for me, it's, just, it's offensive. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh... It's not a present or a future that any of us should aspire to. Yeah. Look, Lydia, it's been uh, it's been great fun. I mean, I I have enjoyed the talk. I have not found the talk dark and depressing. It's I think <laughs> I I have found it very vital and alive. So thank you very much for taking some time out to talk to the Future Pod community. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad that it's not too dark because in the end, it just proves my thesis that that, that is an inspiration for life. So yeah, I hope I I contributed with listeners too and. I'm open to conversations in social media. Just find me. I think there's no other Lydia Zwing in the world besides a lady that lives in Milan. So, and it's who is not me. So it's very uh, easy to find me. Thanks, Lydia. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.